Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. When it came to grouping the first 100 Ideas Roadshow conversations into books of five conversations each, I struggled a bit with where to put my discussion with Miri Rubin. Of course, the obvious fit was in our many history collections, and I even toyed with making a special subcategory of medieval history, which would clearly have suited this hugely accomplished professor of medieval and early modern history at Queen Mary University of London. In the end, however, I opted to create a new collection on religion instead, which fit her work even better, given her constant determination to explore so many different yet overlapping aspects of European religious culture from medieval to early modern times. I never meant to be a historian, that is when I was contemplating, when I decided what to go, what to study at university, I actually studied with chemistry. Oh really? I studied with chemistry, yes, and... uh, Okay, so why would anybody want to be a chemist? I had a brilliant (laughs) chemistry teacher, it's the charisma thing, I'm afraid. I had a wonderful, I had wonderful teachers, I went to one of the best schools in, I would say, the Middle East, the world. Uh, This is in Jerusalem, it's a highly selective, really brilliant, brilliant high school, and we had wonderful teachers in all subjects. So you grew up uh, from early childhood in Jerusalem? Yeah, I grew up in Israel, and from the age of 12 I was in Jerusalem. I went to a brilliant high school and um, uh, had fantastic teachers literally in all subjects, and I'm not exaggerating, they are incredible. But you had a particularly good chemistry teacher. I had a really charismatic chemistry teacher, and uh, and at the time, so we're talking the 70s, um, there weren't so many girls doing science, definitely not at university. So there was a special sort of cachet to it. If you can do it, you ought to pursue it. Uh-huh. Lots of people can do other things, but women in science were so few, so there was a special cachet to it. So I went to university and I uh, studied chemistry in the first year. And um, then we had a great and devastating war, which was the Yom Kippur War, which happened in October, in the beginning of October, just before the academic year was about to begin. So I was going to enter my second year. But um, that wasn't going to happen because everyone is at the front and a lot of the people I knew, young people, soldiers, were killed. So with the education not starting at university, I just went and presented myself in hospital and worked. I worked for about 10 months in um, Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem. And um, so it what, just what, made sort of, me, what sort of things did you do when you. When I just helped. It was in the orthopedic ward. I just helped. It was mostly a ward that dealt with amputees. So just really young men who'd lost a leg or more. And just, I suppose now it would be called, um, you know, physician's assistant or something. Just everything and anything. Um, there wasn't a lot of health and safety in that context. You just did what you. Mm-hmm. what you could, and um, 
so that just made me rethink sort of everything, really. And I remember a day in the hospital where one of the top professors in another ward, who was a father of a friend of mine, saw me. He used to see me regularly in the corridors. And he, and he said, look, Mary, enough. Things are getting back to normal. It's by wintertime or so. And he said, you have to think about, you know, a hospital can be a very captivating environment. It's almost like a sort of you know, a sort of Irving Goffman sort of total institution. You can do everything. You can sleep there, you can eat there, you can, you can do everything, you can have a shower there. You know, you can just live there and be totally engrossed. He said, you've done your bit. Now um, think about the future. So I remember looking at the um, annual, the, the sort of book that contained all the courses to do anywhere in Hebrew U, which is a great university. And I just fell on history and I said, actually, with wars and suffering and loss and all that makes you think about, I really want to understand. And I really want to understand what only history can give me. And uh, so I enrolled in history. So, so if I can just interject yeah. for a moment. In, your, in the beginning year of your studies in chemistry yeah. at Hebrew University, yeah. before the war broke yeah. out, um, you were basically content with the courses? You didn't have a sense of the frustration or ennui or whatever? Uh... It was a little bit on the dry side. And the people I met were terrifically earnest. And I was sort of young and silly. So I did find them a bit, I did find the social environment a bit boring. But, um, you know. But you, you likely would have continued had it not I been for these external I circumstances. I think I would have done, yes. And um, so, so once I chose the history, there's a very distinctive structure to the course in Jerusalem, whereby in your first year, because it's assumed that you know really very little except for maybe the history of Israel and some uh, Jewish history or a very thin survey of other histories. Uh, and also, so, so they, they make you take, the course requires that you do ancient, medieval, early modern, modern. Sort of lecture and seminar in each. So that at the end of the first year, at least you know something about a whole lot of different periods. And I'd never studied the Middle Ages before. And amongst all the excellent teachers I had that year, one simply soared. He's a totally amazing uh, medievalist, still functioning. Who was this? His name is Ron Barcai. He was um, then doing his own PhD. In fact, he was a PhD student, as it were, who was also earning a living by teaching. And he, we were studying the Crusades, and he had the advantage of studying the Crusades, but also knowing Islamic culture very well, not only because his family had come from North Africa, but because he himself had excellent, excellent Arabic. So the whole vantage point we had on the Crusades was not as had traditionally been taught this sort of amazing medieval phenomenon, um, one of the great achievements and memorable, you know, um, it's not an event, but set of events to do with um, medieval culture, but actually as what we might call today cultural encounter, um, a clash of, perhaps even a clash of civilizations, but definitely something much, much more textured. And I remember that in the first class, we looked at the attitude to war in Islam and in Christianity. So we read a bit of the Quran, which now it's part of the course, but at the time in the 70s, it wasn't done, and he did it. So uh, that was my introduction to medieval history. And I was 
absolutely hooked. And then in the second year, I had another totally brilliant, brilliant teacher, Benjamin K. Dahl, who introduced me more to sort of economic history and also to the methodology of thinking through arguments, historical of any kind. And then it just continued from there. And I did an MA in Jerusalem as well. Had again, brilliant teachers. And the interesting thing about Hebrew U, and it's still true today, is that although you know we're tucked away in the Middle East with all our problems and challenges and so on, but culturally, Israel sees itself absolutely part, if not at the forefront of what you might call still some sort of Western cultural sphere. And therefore, um, this is actually recognized by the EU, although Israel is clearly not a member of the EU, and a lot of Europeans rightly have a lot of criticism of the state of Israel. For all sorts of schemes of collaboration, Israel is allowed to participate in a way because it has a lot to give, I think. So um, perhaps it will replace the UK at some point. Oh, Sorry, dear. another <laughs> painful, another painful uh, point. Yes. So um, we felt that we may be far from a center. We're not Paris, London, New York, Chicago, but uh, we wanted to be, and we felt that we merited to be part of that world, partly also because so many of the people who were in Israel and lived in Israel, created the state, who, who were coming to it, were indeed from European backgrounds. We had all the languages. Uh, it, it's, it's common still in Israel for world literature to be translated very, very quickly into Hebrew and very, very high levels of translation because you always have native bilinguals from a given country mm. and Hebrew. So um, that meant that all the people who taught me had been educated in basically top world universities. And there was a particular moment where uh, the new historiography that was coming out of uh, France, the Annal, and its offshoots into America, also to places like Princeton, for example, that is where my teachers had studied or were going to study. The so there was teachers. a direct influence? There was a direct influence. I mean, every, every autumn when we returned, the beginning of the academic year, like now, uh, well, like now, that you won't keep that because, okay, at the beginning of well, every academic summer, we're not, year. We're not telling the year. This is, of course, timeless footage, so it could be, yeah, could be the, September of, of, of 2050. At the beginning of, the academic, of every academic year, I really remember this when I was an MA student, we'd have our teachers coming back fresh from their summers of vacationing and research, but mostly research, I dare say, in various parts of Europe. And they would come and, you know, the first gathering of the various advanced seminars was like hearing what's new out there, what new ideas are there, um, you know, what is Jacques Le Goff doing today, what is Le Roi La Durie thinking, etc. So one can see it as a slavish following, but actually it was a real commitment to being engaged in the history that's happening. We religiously read the TLS to know about new books. Uh, even if they were always so expensive, we couldn't dream of sort of not, definitely not owning them and maybe not even ordering them to the library. So, so there was a way in which, although I was in Jerusalem, which in some senses, uh, of course, is the center of the universe to many religions, but we were in some sense provincial, but we didn't feel provincial. And our aspirations, definitely those who took history seriously, were absolutely uh, the highest in terms of uh, being part of some sort of global conversation about history and in terms of what we would do when we reached the stage of deciding really on our projects. So I was doing, I remember for my MA, maybe this was 78, 79, I did um, a paper on popular religion and the study of popular religion for the Middle Ages, 
can it be done? Can we find sources? And as you know, this was a subject that was then extremely hot, only beginning mm. to be explored seriously by medievalists. But to us, this came naturally. Why? Because my brilliant teacher, the late Michael Haidt, you know, interacted with Natalie Davis, interacted with uh, Ted Rapp, was totally part of these amazing circles of the reception of Anal in American, top American universities. So we never felt um, uh, provincial, and therefore we all for our PhDs went abroad. Right, and of course you weren't provincial uh, by the very fact uh, of, the, of the faculty and the students there who had such direct contacts with leaders of the field. So you were integrated into the global, at the we forefront were. really, yeah, of, the, of we the, were. the global That's world of scholarship. That's absolutely true. We were geographically provincial, but intellectually we felt we belonged to that center. And, and also we believed it could be done because we saw people around us who had done it, who had come back, younger teachers who had just come back from their PhDs, all full of it, wanting to disseminate it. So that was very, uh, very exciting. And so it was natural that um, when I decided I wanted to do a PhD, I had to find some funding somewhere. And at the time, the British Council still did some um, very attractive um, um, bursaries or scholarships for PhDs. Uh, going to America for personal reasons, just going away for so long, just wasn't, um, for me, a suitable choice. So I applied for the funding, and I got it. And I, after having written to a number of um, really great uh, scholars in this country, in Britain, um, I decided to go to Cambridge. And I didn't choose my supervisor. My supervisor was allocated to me. And that was the quite extraordinary Christopher Brooke, who died in December of last year. That's December 2015, and um, who was the most uh, welcoming um, and uh, helpful uh, supervisor for someone who had come from abroad particularly. I mean, he introduced me to having a glass of sherry. He introduced really? me to, uh, how to um, how to engage with extremely, extremely crusty archivists on occasion or college librarians and so My on. Goodness, those are two very salient pedagogical <coughs> experiences, I'm sure. For coming to do an Oxbridge yeah. PhD, absolutely. <laughs> I, I remember everything he taught me and tried to convey it to my own, my own PhD students. And um, so, so there was that continuity in a way, the commitment to a new type of social and cultural history. And in a way, when I came to Britain, I had to keep a lot of that to myself. I don't mean it was um, dangerous knowledge, but it wasn't widely shared at all in Britain. I mean, in a way, I, I had to actually explain to people um, what was so exciting about the French that French vision of, of history, um, and that continued for decades, I'd say. Hmm. In some ways, it still continues, yes. Were there, were there other aspects um, of cultural acclimatization when you came to, <clears throat> to England, not just to Cambridge, um, having been brought up in Jerusalem and, and gone to Hebrew University? So intellectually, in terms of being aware of, of the prevailing trends and being at the forefront, um, there might have been some issues with respect to convincing your Cambridge colleagues to be going in one direction or another direction, or perhaps there weren't. Um, but just acclimatizing to life in the United Kingdom, that must have been somewhat non-trivial for you. Well, Cambridge is both very distinctive, but also very international. There were lots of people who were finding 
sure. their way. Maybe not in medieval history. Medieval history at the time tend to be a bit more homogenous in terms of recruiting mostly British people. That is no longer the case. But I think that was at the time much more so. Uh, of course, this is before 92, which leveled out also access for European students to come. And now Cambridge is full of European students, and I hope that can last. Uh, so, so it was more, I would say, monocultural amongst the medievalists, I would say. And um, there's always kindness, and there's always uh, shared interests. But there were definitely ways in which um, there were ways in which I had to prove myself. So um, while I described Jerusalem as a as a place where the new thinking was was available, at the same time, Jerusalem was, after all, the University of Jerusalem was founded by Central European professors. The traditions of education were also very traditional in some ways. You know, I had my languages, I had my paleography, I had my diplomatics. So it was a wonderful combination of actually having the skills thing being done very, very seriously, although I had to adapt, I had to learn to read English hands because I worked on England for my PhD, but nonetheless, I, I knew how to go about it. And and also, but also I had that extra, that extra historiographical awareness that wasn't so evident here. Mm. And I remember there was a, a very nice man who did a PhD in English um, political history while I uh, did my own, which was to be on charitable activity in medieval England, particularly concentrating on sort of East Anglia. And we would go to the library dutifully every day. And um, there was a medieval seminar we all went to. And often I'd see this colleague um, around five o'clock, you know, seminar time, I'm off on my bike away from the library, done for the day, going off to a seminar. And he absolutely marveled at why it was that I went to seminars, say, on the early modern, or I went to seminars in the Department of Anthropology occasionally, or I went to lectures in art history and so on. He was absolutely did not, he, he thought it was a waste of time, really. He thought it was like a, some sort of disease that I had. And to me, it was absolutely natural that if you're a historian, you're an intellectual, you have to know a lot of things and you have to, uh, and it's a, it's a practice that's extremely interdisciplinary at its best. So how much is, do you think that was attributable to, this is just one data point I recognize, but how much do you think that attitude was attributable to um, the culture of specialization, which tends to be fairly pervasive in this country in terms of the amount of time and effort that one spends in any field for undergraduate and then one's PhD and so forth, um, and the, to my mind, an inordinate amount of specialization that happens at a very early age. And how much is it part of the Cambridge school or Cambridge orientation of looking at things? Was this more of a... Of I a think UK it was focus? widely shared, but given that Cambridge was excellent and had very smart and committed people, maybe it was even more so in a strange way. Hmm. Although there were amazing resources, uh, there were series I remember in art history uh, given regularly uh, every year, taking looking at the cycles in art, that is cycles of paintings by 
brilliant, brilliant expert on Italian art. And um, it was absolutely full, but it was full of sort of retired people and experts in the field and people yeah. from uh, the great public. Uh, now it would be different because I think interdisciplinarity has made a tremendous way. And also in history, the general sense that when you talk about cultures, it pertains to areas of life that are interlocking. And uh, so I think you would, that has changed for the better, but it was very, very different then. Okay. So would you say that Hebrew University had more of what we would call a continental tradition, and you talked about its founders Definitely. and so forth, in Definitely, terms of its yes. orientation? Because Absolutely. there's also that aspect as well. I don't know anything, nor do I pretend to, about the historical tradition, but as one moves towards, um, and maybe this is true in the historical tradition as well, but as one moves towards philosophy, continental tends to be an increasingly pejorative word that's thrown around as opposed to, you know, we analytical, straightforward thinking people and those muddle-headed continental types. Uh, was there any of that at all in, a, 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 in the historical context there? I think it was highly continental in a number of senses of the sort of the culture of academia. So you had professors and the professors had assistants. And the assistants were really there to support them in many, many ways. Now some people asked very little and some people asked a lot of their assistants. I became an assistant in my third year and I, uh, as an undergraduate, and I enjoyed very much working with my professor who was a Byzantine historian. So that means I've always had this sort of Byzantine thing going which was excellent, and he's also he's an elderly gentleman now, but he's a, a very considerable uh, uh, scholar. So that was very enriching, but it did mean the hierarchy was very, very clear, and the student sought to please the master, sought to please the teacher, and that can be a great incentive. That can be, you know, also we had the tradition of the Hoch Seminar, so this really high-powered seminar of crunching texts and problems led by the professor, which was an amazing training ground. And you know that it's, it's Leopold von Ranke who invented the seminar in the University of Berlin in the, in the sort of second quarter of the 19th century. And it was literally, as it says, seminarium, a place where you plant the seeds and they're gonna grow <laughs> into historians. So in a way, that really dense training ground was very much something that we, we recognized. And it isn't so common in the uh, British uh, tradition. In fact, I remember uh, coming to Cambridge and meeting the aforementioned wonderful Christopher Brooke, and a very helpful, very helpful man, and uh, uh, saw to it that I had all the introductions to the libraries and the archives and so on. But after a few weeks, he hadn't asked me to do anything for him. So I assumed he thought he's holding back because he thought she's new, she doesn't know where to find anything, she doesn't know where the books are, she doesn't know where to photocopy. So that he was waiting like for me to go native and then I could be of use. So I remember the day uh, after a few weeks, maybe in the second month, at one of me, I said, um, at the end of one of our uh, supervisions, um, so I said, oh, Professor Brooke, there's something I can do for you. Uh, he looked at me literally bemused and he said, uh, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm going to the library, do you need any books or things? Because that's what I took for granted. And he said, well, oh, I might see you in the library, I'm going off there to do my own research. And, uh, and it was clearly a sort of misunderstanding and we once discussed it a few weeks later and he said, Mary, to me, supervising you, that's a privilege, that's an honour. 
to be training the new historians. I don't think you have to do anything for me except for doing your work. And I'm not at all suggesting that the system I came from was abusive or something because we learned a lot. It's just totally different. Mm. And if you go back to when you think of the tutorial system in general, both in Cambridge and Oxford, if you think of the history of the universities, where tutors were in a way, yes, they were the experts, yes, they were the teachers, they had a certain amount of authority. But those who were, they were teaching traditionally until the great democratization of education in the 20th century, were in a way their social betters. They were uh, tutors to the great. So a sort of diffidence in the relationship in a peculiar mm. way may have crept into and, and become a sort of, a sort of tacit tradition that no one reflected upon. But this notion of asking your student to do something for you, I've never heard, I literally have never heard that happen in any PhD situation, except of course in the last decade or so where some PhDs are funded nowadays by funding, research funding, where they are literally paid to be part of a project. That has introduced a totally different power relationship and of course people are very happy to have the funding and therefore accept that framework. But when I started, and I think still pervasively, it is a very, it's, it's, it's the best thing we do, in a way the funnest thing we do is, is supervise our PhD students. And it was absolutely evident when I came to Cambridge that that is what mm. my supervisor thought. And at the beginning of every meeting, he would take out his diary and put in the date for the next meeting. So I was never in a position of a supplicant ringing because in those days one rang or writing notes or asking to see him. He was always serving me. It was really quite extraordinary. I mean, he was an extraordinary man, but I think he was just the absolutely finest of a tradition that was truly there. And did you have any experiences um, of um, discrimination based upon your sex? Um, so I had a, let, let me preface this with, uh, a little bit of explanation. So I, I had a conversation some time ago with Margaret Jacob, and she talked about how in the early days of her um, research and, and her scholarship, in her experience, it was noteworthy when somebody was not um, at least insinuating or to some extent abusing a, a power relationship with a woman and, and, and so forth. What, what you're describing to me seems like um, impeccable behavior, respectful behavior, being treated with the complete equality. Was that by and large your experiences throughout your scholarly it career? It was absolutely my experience, but remember amongst medievalists there's always a vast number of female students and that helps. There are subjects where you're the only woman. Right. Even subjects in history, areas of history, where women are uh, not so uh, visible. In medieval history, and also there's a, there are some amazing examples of really extraordinary um, medievalists who are, you know, the great Eileen Power. I mean, there are lots of examples, but I would say that um, still, in terms of getting jobs and getting um, research fellowships and postdoctoral positions and so on, I think still men were on the whole more successful than women. And I think that reflected also the fact that still when I arrived there were quite a few single-sex colleges in mm. Cambridge. And indeed when I applied for research fellowship there were quite a few, this will be around 84, 85, quite a few colleges I could not apply to because literally they didn't have men, they didn't have, they didn't have female fellows or females at all, so they didn't. That of course is all history. Right. Uh, but. Um, no, I th I, but I'm sure that gendered attitudes 
were there in terms of aspects of uh, sociability, implicit and so on. I do not think that um, I definitely in interactions with people who were in positions of power, I did not feel that. I would say, if anything, I felt more uh, the fact that it was this Israeli person, he was this person who doesn't come from the Christian tradition, who's working on, who wants to work on uh, Christian religion in the Middle Ages. Uh, some people just sort of marveled. And I remember the great Peter Burke once saying to me, Miri, you are an anthropologist of, of medieval religion because you know, you've come to it so much like someone who just wants to find out and has absolutely no visceral or emotional or you know, no childhood memories of going to mass or anything of, of the kind. So, and there was a, an amazing woman called Dorothy Owen who used to teach paleography and codicology. She was keeper of manuscripts in um, the Cambridge University Library who taught, uh, I think totally out of the kindness of her heart, she taught paleography. So she sat with us, three or four people, and reading manuscripts, uh, English manuscripts. And um, I remember we did dating, and um, so often the date is given as a saint's day. And I remember once we had a dating, which was St. Barnabas's day, so I had prepared. So I looked up St. Barnabas's day, because I didn't have it at my fingertips. Mm. And I remember she turned and she said, Mary, St. Barnabas's day is such and such day. Quite frankly, nobody else in the room knew. But, uh, so there was just occasionally this sort of thing, but really not serious at all. I was, I was fortunate in that sense. But if people tell me or you that they had other experiences, I can't dismiss it. I think I was sort of fortunate. Did you feel yourself that you were unique insofar as you were more of this cultural anthropologist persuasion? I would have imagined that most people who would be studying religion, culture, tradition in, in the medieval era would be looking at it from that perspective rather than trying to necessarily grapple with their personal experiences when they were 10 at mass or what have you. I would, I would have naively assumed that most people would be driven to the field out of a sentiment of intellectual curiosity and uh, um, an interest in cultural traditions and so forth and be looking at a, at a more objective, abstract level. Um, that's clearly what was implied in that comment that you just relayed to me. Was that your experience in terms of your colleagues and your peers, that you were somehow unique insofar as you were able to be more objective or you had more of an anthropological orientation? Well, I don't use the word objective usually because I think we all bring something right. Sorry. to it. And you might even say, as someone who comes from the Jewish tradition, maybe I brought a more skeptical. So, I mean, we all bring something. So let's maybe not use the word objective, but I would say that uh, the fact that people have this commitment to their tradition doesn't mean that they're bad at it. Uh, Christopher Brooke himself is an absolutely devout Christian. And it was made absolutely clear in everything he did that this matters a great deal to him. And yet, he was one of the most acute uh, observer of the folly of, say, the possibilities of, you know, folly competition uh, ugly relations, say, within a monastery. Uh, he wrote wonderful work about forgeries, <laughs> forgeries of relics, forgeries of hagiographies, when houses had to write up a text about their alleged founder because they needed that support for their claims in order to survive. So it's possible, and of course his great teacher was uh, David Knowles, 
who was, had been for most of his life a monk and was the great historian of monasticism, whose work is still extremely important. So I'm not suggesting that um, it's impossible to do it well and that people need to shed everything they know and have, but that that relationship has to be sort of problematized and explicit. And it's much more explicit when it comes, when you get an Israeli woman coming and doing it, it makes people think about it more. But again, I think with the much greater historiographical and conceptual sort of acuity that I think we all carry around these days, definitely people who are doing sort of cultural history, um, even a person who is coming from studying their own tradition, they would probably have a lot of tools to reflect on that in a creative manner. And I should also say that at the time when I was finding my way as a medieval historian, there was a quite extraordinary historian of the Reformation, that's R.W. Scribner, who died far too young, Bob mm. Scribner, who was doing the most extraordinary stuff on just, you know, the 16th century, and was very, very interested in the late medieval, and he was one who used all sorts of approaches, used the visual sources, used anthropology, was extremely, extremely widely read in the social sciences. So although there weren't many amongst the medievalists, there was definitely Bob Scribner and Peter Burke and amazing people, and that's why I hung out with the early early modernists so much. When, if I can just back up for a moment before we move forward more into your, into your work. Um, so I have you as an undergraduate uh, at Hebrew University who is impressed or has impressed upon her uh, an interest and an excitement in medieval history by uh, some particularly influential teachers. Um, so two questions. So the first is, do you think um, the relevance of the time and place in which you were living, perhaps not so much the time, but the place, that is to say that you were in Jerusalem and when one talks about the Crusades and so forth, there's, uh, there is more of a sense perhaps of immediacy or relevance or so forth. Did that, did that play a role in, in, in any aspect of your um, interest or motivation than perhaps if you were to be studying the French Revolution or something like that? What, did that play a role in garnering any sense of excitement for you, do you think? Well, um, I should just say that all our reflections, these sort of ego reflections, are um, bound to be, they can be fanciful. Sure. Uh, but I'm not but looking I, for anything objective. I've learned my exactly. lesson. Exactly. <laughs> but I would say that um, our bit of medieval Europe our bit of medieval Europe, as you rightly say, was the Crusades and their heritage. So we studied it thoroughly. We had one of the leading historians of the Crusades in the world, Joshua Praver, as our teacher of medieval history. We sat at his feet. We learned a great deal from him. We all wrote papers, endless papers, on the Crusades because that is something we could do also happily. Most of the chronicles of the Crusades and a lot of the charters of the Crusades had been published. So we, could, we had them in the library. We could study them. So this was, these were subjects we could do, and indeed my MA was Crusades related as well, because that's something you could actually do in Jerusalem. If you wanted to do archival research, you had to go elsewhere. But even more importantly, I was in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, with all the pain and the sorrow and the division and the chasms, is the city where you really see that people can also live side by side and just about get on. And so uh, it is in Jerusalem that you learn about the diversity of Christianity. Mm. 
that you learn that Christianity isn't just Catholicism, it's also Greek Orthodoxy and Armenian and Syriac and Ethiopian and so on. And um, whenever we had any conference or guests from abroad medievalists, we would take them to our bit of the medieval world, which is, of course, the remnants from Crusader Jerusalem, which a lot of there, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Church of St. Anne, I mean, you can imagine. Mm. And intermingled, of course, with all the remains from uh, the medieval Islamic city, the Mamluk city, which then followed. And uh, we were, we really studied that thoroughly. We know our medieval Jerusalem very, very well. And that's something that you take away. That's like, you know, money in the bank sort of thing. You know, it's, it's a store of images and texts that's extremely powerful in terms of any sense of what religion can be. Was there a sense of, um, I'm going to hold that thought, I'm going to ask you another thought. Um, it's usually the case uh, at any institution that uh, they encourage their students, particularly their, um, their better students, to go elsewhere to do other degrees. So you, you mentioned uh, you did your MA at Hebrew University, um, and then you were fortunate enough to get a scholarship, and then you went off to Cambridge and so forth. Was it explicitly encouraged that you go that you go elsewhere? Was there a certain oh yeah no without any doubt without any doubt other universities in Israel actually do it programmatically. They really go out there and find the funding for people and and uh, Jerusalem you had to do it yourself, but you got a lot of support and you got a lot of sort of just um, word of mouth type of support from teachers who had to go through the whole thing what ten years earlier or whatever, and they told you about how to go about it. Yes, absolutely, and I was mightily. Uh, supported obviously with references and so on, but above all with what I got from all those teachers. Oh yes, no, totally. So in my era, I can think of uh, a scholar who went off um, to, uh, two scholars who went off to the United States at the same time. So yes, you were expected to go and do that. And, and in mostly in the Anglosphere, or were there also many that were going, that were going to Paris or other places Paris as well, Paris as well, uh, although uh, the funding wasn't so obvious. But yes, Paris as well. But in America, what it meant is you go to a top university and then of course that university supports your research wherever you have to go, you then go to Europe and do it. So um, yes, that was absolutely normal. And here there's a difference with our colleagues in Jewish history at the time. Because our colleague Jewish history, this is quite important as well, something that has changed for the better, I think. Uh, Jewish history was obviously Jerusalem is a big center for the study of Jewish history, but it was a totally different department, a totally different department in a different building. Mm. We never met. The sociology of the students was totally, totally different. People doing Jewish history tended to be students who came from more traditional and indeed observant backgrounds, mm -hmm. uh, as were the teachers. Um, and you could literally study history in Jerusalem, the Department of General History, which of course is Algemeine Geschichte. Um, you could do that. Um, without ever learning, doing nothing about the history of Jews. That's how it was organized now. As it happened, I did some elective courses in Jewish history, and because I was doing so much on the Crusades with my aforementioned wonderful teacher, I decided to do something, a course on um, the massacres of the Jews in 1096, which happened in the course of the Crusades, and. Uh, and inspired the creation of a vast literature of uh, poetic laments, chronicles, and so on. And you could not imagine a greater separation. 
You could not imagine how just literally when I did my, well, when I did the, in the general history department, I did the Crusades, and of course I found out and I knew that, that these massacres had occurred because they're also mentioned in the Latin uh, sources. And that's what encouraged me to go and do the course in the Jewish history side. But in the Jewish history side, it was literally nothing. Why did people go on crusade? What do these Christians think about Jews they were killing to produce the sources that we were studying? It was just not, that would not happen today. There has been a real rapprochement and people who train themselves in Jewish history, well, a lot of the best ones are cognizant, often learn Latin, and there are some amazing figures like uh, Israel Yuval, for example, in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. who are as trained, they're as good a medievalist as I am on the, on the European side, on the, on the Christian side, as they are uh, on the uh, Jewish sources. So that has also changed. And there's presumably not as much of a strict correlation between those who study Jewish history and those who are observant Jews and feel um, uh, and identify as strongly with, with the Jewish faith as there were originally, or is that not, not so much I think I think it's still very, very noticeable. Right. Yeah. Was, there, uh, was there a confusion and perhaps a false conflation of identities when you first went to, uh, to Cambridge as a, as a young Israeli woman, that because you were a young Israeli woman, therefore you were um, Jewish and potentially an observant Jew and so forth? Uh, I mean, it, in my experience, there does tend to be a broader lack of comprehension, even today, perhaps not so much among amongst academics, but uh, amongst people of the general public, but um, there's a lack of sensitivity to this idea that one can be Israeli, one can be proud Israeli, one can have this particular cultural tradition and not, and yet at the same time, not at all be an observant Jew. Was there, was there any sense of confusion about where to put you? You mentioned... There was above all a real ignorance. Mm. So there was, um, I mean, Israel was already much, much criticized in the world, and for very understandable reasons, of course, is then, and then of course came the first intifada, then the second intifada, and now Gaza, so Israel's pariah position, let's say, mm. in certain circles, only grew over the period that I've um, right. lived in this country, and, uh, and of course, um, of course, extraordinary things were happening in Israel, and indeed in Israel itself, the descent has become sharper. Sure. So what I got is much more, uh, well, there was a sort of timidity about just not going there. <laughs> I remember in one of the first drinks parties, I had to get used to these drinks parties. I'd never been to drinks parties as such. But then you learned how to drink sherry. So yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> Thanks to Christopher, I could hold my own. Uh, so I remember one of my uh, first drinks parties in Cambridge, uh, this young man who was uh, another PhD student, I don't remember what he was studying, but he, you know, where he's from, from Israel, said, oh, you've done amazing things with irrigation, haven't you? Like, like you in did. 1981, <laughs> the most appropriate thing to say about Israel is the irrigation, which of course is utterly brilliant, but like, is that what trips off the tongue when you have issues, when you have settlements, when you have a painful issue of, of occupation that is distressing so many Israelis as well as everyone else, when the hopes uh, for peace, our, our race, and then dashed. I mean, uh, and so, you're Ben Gurion all of a sudden. Uh, <laughs> yes, quite exactly. I'm Ben Gurion in the Negev with the tomatoes. So you've got that, but I mean, I could see that it was out of embarrassment, mm. 
Now what happens, and this literally happened uh, a few weeks ago to a friend of mine, she came to a dinner in Cambridge, and the, first per the person who sat by her uh, said to her, where are you from? She said, I'm from Israel. I said, oh, well, I'm a supporter of Hamas. <laughs> End of conversation. So, uh, so what I'm saying is that there was much more timidity around the issue. Right. And also because I, I speak English somewhat with an American accent, because I was born in America, my parents were American, and we spoke American at home, um, people didn't know quite what to make, so they just didn't go there on the whole. Because on the whole, the English don't like to embarrass others or themselves on the whole. Or even speak frankly most of the time. So. Well, that's related. <laughs> but uh, I did have one very shocking experience, I think, which was in the uh, Lent of the first year I was, I say Lent advisedly, because in Cambridge is a wonderful tradition at King's College, of, um, of there's always a performance of one of the Bach Passions, and it was the St. Matthew's Passion. Mm. And um, so, you know, I put my pennies together. I was extremely, extremely penurious. Uh, put them together and, together, and, and with a, uh, a colleague from my college who was training to become a teacher, a lovely Welsh person who had a beautiful singing voice. I shan't mention her name. Uh, we decided to go together. This is a big event. This is March, but it was a snowy March. There was snow on the ground. We crossed over the backs and into Kings, and we went to hear this glorious music. But St. Matthew's Passion is St. Matthew's Passion. Mm. And um, I remember this woman who was going to be a, an English teacher, who was uh, a nice person. We were friends in every way. I th well, we were friends. We were walking back, and I remember it was in the virgin snow, stepping on the snow. And she said to me, Mary, why is it that the Jews always make trouble? I mean, like, you know, I Jesus was, was there. He didn't mean any, like, why do the Jews always, like, reject and make trouble? And she honestly asked the question. I was wondering why you didn't want to mention her name, because before you said, I'm not going to mention her name because she had a beautiful singing voice. And, she had, like a, and she had a beautiful voice. <laughs> couldn't make the, couldn't had, make the chord. Now I, I understand and, why. And I'm sorry if I said confused there with my uh, syntax. But she, so she, and I was just so like, oh, my God, where does one even begin? And that was quite an education that, uh, and you know, she was going to be a teacher, she was a nice person, she came from, she came herself from a people who have known, after all, periods of conquest and oppression, and there was just no sense, but there was also no sense about how culture mediates ideas, how Bach sat there and he read biblical commentaries, we now know there's a wonderful book about it, he read biblical commentaries that took the Bible and particularly turned it into a particular type of interpretation, and that is what he used, because we have his annotated Bible. We know what he was reading when he composed it. So, you know, but there was none of that. It was just something, yeah. And I'll suggest, I'm not at all suggesting that it came from some sense of Welsh chapel, not at all. Yeah. These are dissident uh, Christians on the whole, dissident traditions. It's rather just a sort of blahness, a sort of not knowing. And I think we're far more knowing about religious traditions right now. We've had to become re-educated in religion in the last 10 or 20 years. You think we are? I think we are. I mm. think we are. I see it in the curriculum that my son studied at school. But uh, I also, we've had to because religion is now in our midst. It's not going away. There was a time, uh, you know, in the post-war, ideas of progress, ideas of sort of, you know, secularization, modernization. Mm. 
it's not a remnant, it's with us. It takes new forms, but it's with us. So I think we're less ignorant on the whole about religions. And definitely a person who's going to be a teacher would be far, far better informed nowadays, I think. That, that makes sense. What, uh, my surprise was uh, generated by my perspective, which is uh, characterizations, and this is drifting further afield, but that's the way things happen in a conversation, yeah. characterizations in the media. Um, so clearly religion is in our midst in the, in the, in the popular consciousness in terms of events that happen in the public and so forth. But it seems to me that that might lead to just as much uh, of an ability or an orientation to misconstrue as to actually get a broader tolerance and understanding. But you were referring more to formal education and your son and curricula and so forth. And yes. I was thinking more in terms of the popular consciousness. Yeah, I would say that also Britain has become more diverse. So people definitely know much, much more about Islam. But they also might know about European Catholicism more because we have schools with lots and lots of Polish students and Baltic students, etc. So I think the whole issue of religion, it's not going away. And I think the moment when people realize that was, of course, the Iranian Revolution. It's a, it's a force in the world, hmm. and let alone American evangelicalism. So I'm thinking, here's this woman who has given a lot of thought to the interplay of religion and culture and society. Um, you mentioned uh, your upbringing, or at least aspects of life in Jerusalem, where um, obviously there were significant military and cultural clashes, but there were also, and, and are also, long periods and long traditions of people living harmoniously next to one another and interacting and so forth. So I'm thinking this, is, uh, this has played a significant role in your orientation and your perspective and, and your scholarship. Um, so that's why I'm probing in this particular direction, because I, uh, I'm, I'm wondering what's motivating someone to do that. And it might be related to aspects of your upbringing um, and, and orientation and perspective, uh, or, or it might not be. I think probably the way to put it would be that once at a very mundane and, 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 and self-evident level, the teachers who excited me were those who opened up the Middle Ages to me, then a whole lot of enriching, enhancing possibilities were available in a city like Jerusalem to make that seem a sensible project to engage with. That's mm -hmm. probably it. But um, I wanted to understand how living within a religious culture, what it makes people do or not do, and whether there is a sort of structure to it, or and how it changes over time. Um, because I think I see religion as a sort of historical force that interacts with other things. It's a cultural force. It's not something that obeys other rules, as it were. So therefore, testing again something like giving to the poor so I was able to look at, that was based on my PhD, my first book. So I was able to look at how within the Christian tradition, within the culture created around uh, a Christian ideas and practices, they developed a particular orientation towards charity. And it was preached and it was taught and it was represented on, on wall paintings and people absorbed it, etc. And as they built cities or as they wrote their will, in all sorts of acts that are not 
primarily of the religious domain, this informed what they did, what they did with their resources, what they did with their spare time, uh, and how they wanted to be seen as well as someone who is charitable or not. But I also correlated it to what's happening in the economy, what's happening in terms of people's well-being and sense of their well-being. And I showed that there too, there is a sort of correlation that people are more generous and more open-handed and more willing to think sort of, you know, blue sky thinking new types of institutions, new types of communal efforts when things are growing and prospering. And when times are, are harder, they look more to, even when they do help, and those who are, you know, particularly civic leaders always have to do something public-minded, they, they tend to choose people more like themselves, they tend to choose forms of giving that are more, let's say, not exactly transparent, but where you can see the result more obviously than just sort of giving and hoping that it reaches the trickle-down sort of thing. So, um, so there was an attempt to both um, acknowledge the rich possibilities of a religious culture to encourage people to do the right thing, as it were. And um, I worked a bit with um, concepts like altruism or... But I didn't want to sort of reduce everything towards... I didn't want to go into a sense of um, altruism is really a form of egoism that you know they gave because they wanted to be seen. I, I think that doing the right thing can become a sort of habit and something very ingrained and very, you know, very real. Yeah, in that sense, you know, it's a sort of Kantian idea that you do the right thing, it becomes a good habit sort of thing. Right. But also that long-term processes that are economic and demographic that have to do with people's sense of their security and well-being, the well-being of their family and those immediately around them, um, you know, do affect the degree to which they're willing to think of others as part of that circle. And, and these are all um, very logical and rational and continually relevant factors um, in our society, but there, there is, or at least there was a stereotype, and now I'm, I'm speaking more in, in, the, in the popular consciousness, I have no idea uh, about whether or not this exists in medieval studies. Uh, I have some suspicions, but I have no knowledge. Um, there is this sense of othering in time with respect to those people way back when. So back in the Middle Ages and back in medieval times, oh yes, people acted in this weird way because they were all heavily religious and brainwashed, or they were all at some level um, unthinking individuals, or they were led in one way or the other. And it seems to me that a relatively constant theme throughout your work is to be um, denying this outright and saying these are people who lived, of course, in their time. Um, they were influenced by the prevailing socio-political factors, economic factors, and so forth. Um, but they weren't, of course, uh, they weren't strikingly different from you no, or I. Their societies I totally were, were, yeah. may have been different, but they yeah. as individuals, there's this notion of agency and, and, and the people are, are leading their lives as people are doing right now all around us in different, different places and different times. And constantly breaking down these barriers of saying, oh yes, well these were these you know, pre-modern people or, or, or individuals such as that. So my, I guess I have a few questions because I like to ask questions all in a row to confuse people. So my first question is, is that true? Yes. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I mean, I'm a fairly tolerant person. One thing I can't abide is this whole sort of like escapism thing, like the Middle Ages. Oh, it's weird and wonderful, and we we do reenactments. And I mean, you can learn a lot from reenactments. But what I'm saying is, I don't expect. I mean, I expect to be surprised because people's ingenuity and people's sometimes cruelty and people's is extraordinary. So you describe it, articulate it in different cultures at different times and it sometimes takes your breath away. But but also their capacity to think good thoughts. So in that sense, we can find all of that there. So I'm not suggesting that, oh, it's a big mess, we just go into the Middle Ages, we find the good, we find the bad. What I've suggested what I suggest is that we also have to understand the processes and the structures and how one thing can lead to another, both then and now. So if you put out there certain types of ideologies or certain type of stereotypes, you may get a certain outcome in terms of social relations. If you have certain ways of treating women, they will be treated by others. I mean, there, is, there are certain processes that we can recognize and understand and which I think are illuminating to understand our present. Mm. But I think that fundamentally, Look, if, if we can understand atrocities committed in the 20th century, even the 21st century, understand them only in as much as we can see a cruel rationality uh, uh, operating, then I don't see why we can't bring that, say, to um, the cruelties perpetrated in the Middle Ages against some minorities sometimes, sometimes, or judicial torture, or forms of execution. It's all in the world around us. There is no enormity of the Middle Ages, I can't think of one, that is not operating somewhere in the world today. The difference is that we hope and feel that in some parts of the world we have learned from it, we've made progress, we have gotten rid of certain, but we have to protect those achievements extremely, mm. extremely vigilantly because fundamentally Bad things can happen everywhere. Was there, uh, uh, turning briefly to the scholarly community, um, in terms of pigeonholing or, or putting up walls around the Middle Ages or, or medieval time periods, um, and not identifying at the same level of agency of individuals acting, um, has that changed? Was that ever a problem? And, and has it changed in, in the last 30 or 40 years? I think it really, really has changed. And I think uh, the new history, which seeks people's experience more than law, states, parliament, rulers, etc., that sees every person as interesting, that sees agency in the serfs of medieval England, in the most abject sort of women who turn up and are the subject of court cases in medieval cities, etc., in, uh, in, in the confused fear and resentment amongst Jews very often to those Christians around them. Those sort of experiences are so, are, they speak for themselves. What you need is historians who will make them speak. That is, you need historians who will show why looking at the Middle Ages is so rewarding and that you can know things that are worth knowing. And we had some wonderful examples amongst early modernists. So when you think of, say, the work of Carlo Ginzburg and when he 
takes a lifetime of dissent and strange thinking and strange self-expression by his Miller from Friuli in the 16th century, the work that then came out in English as The Cheese and the Worms in the 70s. So you see that in a way around Menocchio, his Miller, he got to know him far better than maybe people working on a 20th century characters only or not working on 20th century characters because they're working on other things in the 20th century that seem to be suggested because there's an abundance of material or looking at policy or whatever so or at least as interesting so i think trying to get that sense of experience agency community, how people interact with each other, not because, oh, in the Middle Ages, everybody sat around together and were terribly bonded because they were all Christian and they were all serfs, not that at all. It was as riven with difference, that society, as is our own and as complex. But the historians had to come and make it happen so that other historians of other periods who are seemingly endowed with better sources and they can answer questions in a much more decisive manner have to sit up and listen because there's something uh, to be learned. So one thing that strikes me as a significant difference in this period, um, and maybe this is just my scientific background and persuasion, is um, loosely put, this is this is I was going to say a pre-scientific age. That's that's a, that's a huge judgment and doubtless. It had its own science. And, and many right. Um, but if I were if I were to look at your uh, an average subset of society today, as opposed to um, in the 14th century or the 13th century or 12th century or what have you, um, a significant difference would be uh, not just the technology, but also the science and the scientific outlook. Of course, I could say the same thing about the classical era as well, and I could I could say the same thing about the the 18th century for that matter. But nonetheless, I think in terms of scientific orientation and disposition. Um, it, it, at least my understanding is uh, there, these were worlds apart in terms of orientation. Um, so much so, in fact, that, that when one goes through a scientific training, there's a sense of, well, nothing really happened then. You know, there was a large swath of time for a thousand years where not, nothing actually really happened. But so I'm, uh, what I'm really saying is, is it fair, or what I'm really asking, rather, is, is it fair to say that... Um, that a, a, a tremendous distinction between um, people living in contemporary societies, or, or at least broadly defined within 150 years or so, and people living in the Middle Ages, is their scientific orientation broadly defined? And how much of a role would science or scientific thinking or, or ideas even of change brought on by scientific understanding and technology um, define us as opposed to people living in, in, a, in that time period? That's very interesting because when you go to the bit where you said the issue of change, there I'm, I'm with you in terms of I think the experience of time may be something that has massively accelerated what we expect to be able to achieve but quite frankly that's probably accelerated between now and my great-grandmother's time, or grandmother's time even. So, and there's a very great, uh, a very interesting German sociologist called Hartmut Rosa, who's writing a lot about social acceleration, what that's going to do to us. And um, 
So I wouldn't say that the difference is a scientific orientation because quite frankly they had a scientific orientation, they had a scientific framework, it was Aristotelian on the whole. It um, believed in categories, it believed in cause and effect, it believed in a lot of what you would recognize, only it's not the system that we have and they don't know most of what we know they did not know. But how many people today actually know the science? That's the question. I mean, when you think of it, and this is really not trying to say, oh, the Middle Ages is just like anywhere else, because we will get to the difference in a minute, but how many people really, this always really scares me, you know, it's sort of like we went back to be, you know, we lost our experts. We have experts. We have experts, and they're relatively few to the number of all of us who are consumers. Um, you know, look at our phone, look at that extraordinary camera, etc. How many of us even understand how it works? When we look at the beautiful, wonderful pictures that come from, uh, from CERN or from space nowadays, do we really understand them as science or do we understand them almost like performance art? They're beautiful, they're amazing. They also encourage us that our our money that's going to the people who really know what they're doing, and that is extraordinary. Do we really, really understand the processes? I know I don't, uh, and sometimes that seems to be a problem, and I just then leave it aside, because there are other things to worry about. Well, this is, so if I can interject, so this is a fascinating point. Um, maybe I just think it's a fascinating point, because I happen to emphatically agree with it, so maybe I should just back this up. <laughs> I, I think what you're touching on um, is this notion of an appeal to authority and, and who is an, a, an authority figure. And sometimes I do think that in our contemporary society, um, notwithstanding what I understand the scientific revolution was supposed to be all about, what we've really done is we've just switched authority figures. So instead of saying, well, yes, you have to believe this because your priest says this or the pope says this or what have you, um, we now have a situation where we say, well, yes, you have to believe this because this particular scientific authority says this, or because Steve Jobs says this, or, 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 or what have you. Um, so I'm, I'm rambling a bit. I tend to do that. It's a very interesting point because, because my understanding of what this great watershed of whatever, the scientific revolution, and then the enlightenment following and so forth was supposed to represent was this not only democratizing notion of all people have the opportunity to learn things, but that all people have an obligation to actually investigate and be able to educate themselves. And, and what was wrong with Aristotelian physics was not so much that the physics was wrong, although the physics did happen to be wrong as yeah. well, but it was this idea that this is what you learn and this is the canonical approach and it was tied up to scripture and so forth or you know whatever neoplatonists somehow managed to sew things together and all, all the rest of that sort of thing so that you can't possibly question this because there's an authority that's there and what my understanding of what the scientific revolution was supposed to be all about was to say no we have to get beyond all of that and so Galileo rolling balls and doing all of that wasn't just about saying the laws are different they're this way instead of that way it's it's everyone has the opportunity and to some extent the obligation to actually investigate those things and it's accessible to all and it I was think that it's notion. stating it a bit strongly for the 17th and 18th century to say that everybody, because this is still a very hierarchical society and people who have access, right, but principle. you're right, but you're right. I mean, something like the Royal Society means people can sort of, uh, with its trans philosophical transactions, means that, you know, it's not very expensive and 
a doctor or a, or even a priest who's interested or a, can can engage can read can know what's happening um yeah i mean there was a subscription system but nonetheless um yes i think that issue of democratizing is is very interesting isn't it but i also think it's the issue of experimentation and accountability and how the relationship between experiment and law and how you deduce and so on and where you stop and how far you have to go in explaining and when do you resort to uh, I don't know and the very fact that I can't understand it is only a proof that God has made the world in mysterious and wonderful ways. Mm. So there is a difference, but, but not as much as a difference as is usually posited, I think. And as you said, and this issue of the sociology of knowledge, who is in charge of knowledge, who has access to knowledge, the whole issue of who knows what, which is, I think, only becoming more and more obscure. I know that everything is out there on the internet and you can learn to build anything on the internet, etc. cetera. Uh, but are really breakthroughs in uh, biochemistry, biomedicine and so on, not hotly and carefully guarded secrets as well. There is secrecy and there is mystery also <clears throat> around what we're producing. What I would say though, a big difference is the issue of, I think, uh, medicine and the relief of pain. That those of us in, who have good medical systems in our countries, I think we are relieved from many areas of constant and nagging and chronic pain. Not that we can do everything for everyone, but I think that is a terrific relief. And that must also affect people's relationship with each other. It must, it may even have to do with, say, levels of violence. People are less irked and in pain and annoyed and therefore maybe don't lash out in the same way that they used to in the past. That may be something that could be explored. Mm. How emotions and moods and dispositions relate to levels of discomfort and pain. So, and I, there was a period when I read quite a lot of uh, medical tracts, and um, <laughs> I'm so happy that I don't live then in sure. terms of, <laughs> I mean, I know it it's sounds extremely, <laughs> extremely a trivial thing to say, but, um, but areas of sort of just making people's lives more comfortable, even if they have illnesses, even if they're disabled, I think that's really, really important, let alone our attitudes to them as well. So, picking up on the attitudes, I mean, obviously, there's this, um, there are these, in addition to the average, uh, maybe that's not the right way to put it, in addition to the plethora of diseases which, uh, which are out there, plethora is a singular, isn't it? Plethora which is out there. Anyway, that sounds wrong. But anyway, in addition to the vast number of diseases which exist, uh, in addition to the fact that we have such uh, in addition to the fact that we have uh, obviously developed painkillers and anesthetics to a much higher degree, to a degree, um, than have been done uh, seven or eight hundred years previously, um, there are also these uh, these disasters, these social disasters that befell large tracts of society. You have plagues, and you have you have these, 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 these horrible uh, medical catastrophes which afflict vast numbers of, of people. The average individual's lifespan was, well, I don't know exactly what it was in various 
points in time, but it was vastly diminished compared to what it is today. Um, treatment of diseases was, was much less. Did this, presumably, this would have had a, a, a sociological effect in terms of um, driving people to more sukkah and comfort from uh, religion and other cultural aspects. Do you think these things are linked in any particular way? Okay, um, on the issue of demography, it's very interesting. The most dangerous time in life was, was infancy. Mm. But if you recovered from inf if you if you if you got over infancy, that is, if you survived infancy, right. um, life expectancy wasn't that different from a hundred years ago. It's hmm. interesting. So, so your average. So, if you were to if you were to do a demographic study of your average five year old or something like that back in in, in, in the fourteenth century, wasn't that different? You, but, if you survived, you would. It's not uncommon to go into your fifties, which is when what people went into in the. In, the hmm. in sort of 19th right. and early 20th century. Right. So there's that. Also, we have lots and lots and lots of examples of extremely old people. That also, that could also happen. And people sought to extend life, to lengthen life, obviously, particularly those who had the money to invest, the popes, aristocrats, etc. Hmm. There's one wonderful um, a tract about um, hemorrhoid operations that... Um, my colleague uh, Peter Jones wrote about, and it's it, a wonderful tract about hemorrhoid operations. Yes, you'll see why in a minute because it offers two ways. There's the really, 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 really painful for a shorter period, or there's the less painful but it goes on for longer. In terms of the suffering, and so there's literally that. That is, you choose, you choose. Okay, so what I'm saying is there is awareness. The fact that people suffer didn't mean that they did not want to do something about it. So this sure. is again to the issue of agency. Sure. And, and, and tracks like that, that happens to be a vernacular text. Sort of. It's in English, so it, it wasn't a Latin text. It was a text that was probably in the, hand, you know, in the hand of a doctor that could have influenced the lives of people. And as hemorrhoids particularly related also to um, riding horses, etc., it was probably the male part of the population more than women. We can go from there. So, so, so it's quite important to remember that they shared with us the desire to make a better life, if at all possible, and to suffer, to not suffer pain. But you're absolutely right that um, the cult of saints is fundamentally related to the desire to avert some of these terrible issues. The issue of um, of child, you know, there were there were there were uh, child illness, but obviously. Um, uh, the death of children. There were there were saints. There were saints who and shrines where you would bring a child even dead, and it was said that it could revive it. That was obviously a theologically a no no, but but that was also claimed. But you know what's also really striking, and I got a, a handle on this when I did the when I studied the cult, the the, the miracles that were claimed for uh, the twelfth century in the twelfth century for the saint. Uh, this boy William of Norwich was considered a saint locally that most of the people come for really, come to a shrine for really nagging, long-standing, painful, uncomfortable forms of suffering, you know, for disabilities, for really, really painful postures or growth and tumors and whatnot, mm. and um, to make life a little better. And um, so that's part of that 
life. So it's not just a question of dying or, or surviving. It's a question of also what quality of life you had. And the quality of life for a lot of people was really, really poor. Because was, yeah. was there an expectancy amongst many of these people, um, if not all of them, for just to have their burden relieved a little bit rather than necessarily being completely cured of, of, of everything when they would go to these, to these shrines and, and so forth? Was there more of a sense of, can, you, can I just get a little bit of relief to make it through the day? Or, or, or was there some sense of, of complete and total... Well, this is where the genre is so important because uh, we know about these types of cures because people sat down in the shrines and wrote down the miracles in order to advertise the shrine or in order to develop a dossier to show this saint is a really strong saint. And of course, after the 13th century, you need to collect various types of miracles in order to support a case for canonization through the papacy. Right. But um, so, so people, therefore, would really put down the really successful ones. If somebody has to come back again and again, I don't think that would really, we would find out about it. Right. So we're not so likely so to find out to about it. But there are some cases where, or I can think at least one case, where the um, petitioner, the person who hopes to be cured, is told, um, is cured, and is told, go away and do this to keep the cure alive and the person becomes complacent and doesn't, and then there is a recurrence. Mm. So, or in one case, one of the monks of the Norwich Cathedral Priory, if I remember correctly, is told to never see a doctor again, because it's always this competition between religious healing and doctor healing, as it right. were. And often the stories begin by saying, and after they gave up, every doctor, they'd seen every doctor, and they paid all this money to the doctor, they had no more money. Then they heard about St. William's, they went to his shrine. So there is this issue of competition between the two. And um, so a case when one of the monks of the Norwich Cathedral Priory was told was going to be cured as long as he doesn't go to see a secular doctor. Oh. And then he has a recurrence, and he does, and then he loses, and then he, he complains. He said, well, you did the wrong thing, and that's the part of the deal that wasn't yeah. fulfilled. So since you brought up the William of Norwich, I have a couple of questions. My first is a, is a is I guess, more of a, a scholarly, sociological one. Um, my understanding is that you you translated this. I mean, mm. your, your Latin has to be... 44,500 words. That, um, that's, that can't be very easy to, to have done just from... A classical perspective, obviously you were trained in this way, but there's... Uh, it's not classical it Latin, it's medieval Latin. It's a bit easier in terms... Well, it's not that it's easier, it's just that I'm used to reading hmm. medieval Latin. Yes, it was hard partly because um, this guy who wrote it was a monk with a certain version of 12th century learned Latin, where he would show off quite a lot by various syntactical arrangements that are very hard to render in modern English translation. So he loved saying things like, um, so after, after, say, a miraculous cure, and they were joyfully joyful. That to us would sound appalling. But in the Latin, has a certain something. And he does a lot of this type of alliteration, cumbersome alliteration. And I had to decide, you know, what do I do? So what did you do? What do, well, what do you do with joyfully joyful? Well, first in the introduction, I explained mm. that he was using various forms. 
that to look out for it. And in some cases, I actually had a note for the reader to say, I've translated it this way because this is what he said. And just to give you the sense that he's trying rather than I sort of was lazy with my own choice of, of words. So there was that. And it was, it was an education, though. It is true. It was an education because because I did the Mary book before, mm. I had been reading a lot of devotional text and a lot of liturgy and a lot of prayers. And they're quite, they have their own. Uh, um, actually, it's, it's, it's a very recognizable style and also very recognizable uh, vocabulary. So I had to sort of re-equip myself, uh, particularly on the issue of medicine. There are lots of, you know, describing limbs and diseases and all that. But also just my author was showing off a lot. And so I had to, yeah, it was an education, but it's not. Christopher Brooke said to me when I was a PhD student, <clears throat> and my PhD student was fully based on archival research, but he said to me, and he himself was an amazing Latinist, an amazing Latinist, and also he was for decades a very great editor of an extremely distinguished series, the, Oxford, uh, the Nelson Medieval Text, which then became the Oxford Medieval Text, and is still going. So his, you know, he was just, he did this so much in terms of preparing learned texts for our use and uh, in translation, that is the Latin and the translation. So he said to me, and I remember when I was a PhD student, every medievalist should at some point edit a text. Just edit a text and bring something into circulation. It, it, uh, it, it also hones these particular skills. And I was really, really proud that he, he liked my translations. And also, if I had a question, I was, I, I was able to ask him. Uh, that was just because he died in December, and right. he was very proud of what I managed to do. And he was very interested, always very supportive. So to go back to the issue of uh, the translation, you know, colleagues do this. It's uh, you could have picked yeah. a smaller text, presumably, but. <laughs> It's, it's interesting how it came about, which shows you again how things happen in academia and in, in scholarly lives. You just do not know all sorts of serendipities arise, or at least they seem to have happened to me. Um, I said first, I said, I told you that um, um, we didn't have a lot of Jewish history taught us in the, in the uh, general history department. And I never thought I'd be doing anything to do with Jews, because I was coming to do history of medieval Europe and mm. its social and religious cultures. But um, even when I was studying charity, this the Jews were popping up in various places. So, for example, uh, if you wanted to find found a hospital, so um, you needed to put some tracts of land together, you know, a plot to build a hospital on. So, um, Jews in medieval cities were allowed to lend money and take land as surety, but if somebody failed to repay a loan, they couldn't hold on to the land. They had to get rid of the land because Jews were not allowed to hold the land. So uh, there was a way in which clever entrepreneurs who were developers who wanted to endow, say, a religious institution or indeed a college, as was the case in a number of uh, Oxford colleges, uh, a good thing would be to, to, to get together with some Jews who wanted to sell land and you would get an advantageous package mm. out of that. So I, I saw Jews sort of popping up on various occasions when I was looking at hospitals. So I sort of filed that away. Also, when I was looking at sermons, occasionally, rhetorically, uh, a, a preacher will say you, that you know, Christians ought to be uh, charitable to other Christians. Say, do you ever see a Jewish beggar in the street? 
Well, if the Jews take care of their own a fortiori, Christians should as well. So the Jews are sort of popped up here and there in the charity project. But they really turned up big time when I started working on um, the Eucharist, that is, the, the, the sacrament of the altar, the mass, the thinking about it. Here is a new type of sacrifice. It's not like the, uh, you know, the, the bloody and sacrifices of yore at the altar, slaughtering animals in the temple. This is the new, this is a, a spiritual sacrifice. This is uh, the, an offering, which is Christ's body, etc., etc. So it's always there in the theology of the Eucharist, let alone that produced my third, that prompted me to write the third book, let alone uh, when um, Jews were, people started imagining the Jews because the, the Eucharist in the 13th century became this central sacrament, really, really important. And above all, as the, the theological requirement was that you believe that after the words of the consecration, Christ is actually present in the consecrated bread and wine. Well, if Christ's body is, is there in every parish church, in every chapel where the Mass is celebrated, it comes, it's, it's it, so consecrated hosts are, are kept in vessels and churches in order to be used, to be taken to the sick and dying, it's so exposed. It's so vulnerable. It can be stolen. It can be derided. Mm. It can be derided when a priest walks down the lanes of, of a village walking to a dying person's house with the sacrament in his hands and the Jews passing by sort of, you know, make a comment or deride it and say, oh, honestly, a piece of bread and they think it's their God sort of thing. So the world in, whose, in the center of whose ritual sort of activity was now this all-powerful but seemingly also so vulnerable God. You know, stories about it, miracle stories about Eucharist that were saved from various forms of abuse. And of course the Jews then just offer themselves as these sort of protagonists in this type of thinking or this type of storytelling, which, uh, because they didn't believe it. And it's true that they didn't believe it. They thought it was an extraordinary idea. Although they probably also were quite fascinated by it. So that led me to the third book, which was about, okay, how does a new story about Jews develop? So I found myself all of a sudden working on Jews. And then when I worked on Mary, it was evident that Mary and the Jews have a very special and difficult and extraordinary relationship. And since then, I've just, I read a lot in Jewish history, and of course, my Hebrew helps me, reading the sources and so on. And it's just become part of the picture of this diverse uh, medieval world. Because there's no doubt at all that though the Jews were an absolutely insignificant minority numerically mm. in most parts of Europe. Their location within the culture was really quite central. So how did you get involved in, in, in this book by, by Thomas of Monmouth? Uh, the, the so book? the serendipity was that a very, very... A uh, dear friend of mine, Willis Johnson, who is an extremely well-trained uh, uh, medievalist and uh, got his PhD from Berkeley, and he was hoping to go on medieval studies, but he ended up working in a very, very high level of um, information technology with Microsoft and elsewhere. He's a quite brilliant person. And when he was still doing medieval scholarship, he thought that he might edit the text because the manuscript of the William of Norwich thing was only of, of, of the 
the life and passion of uh, William of Norwich. The manuscript itself was only discovered in 1891, and a very distinguished uh, medievalist and expert in manuscripts uh, um, co-edited it and translated it, but it was evident that the, there are many copies of this book around. Uh, the translation was extremely Victorian, in, both in its um, tone, but also in the stuff that it left out. It wasn't annotated fully. And if this is such a rich and interesting text and people are sort of just downloading a few pages that are available on the internet, uh, Willis thought that it deserves better service because it can teach the community of scholars and students so much. So he planned to do it. And then when his life took a different direction, he wrote to me and he said, gosh, I feel really bad because this text really does need editing, but I probably won't get around to it. Can you think of someone who can do it? And I was then in the throes of the Mary book, but I thought to myself, actually, and remembering Christopher Brooks' right. exhortation to edited book text, and it was sort of made for me in terms of my interests. So I thought, I'll do that. And, um, and then, just over lunch, literally with the brilliant uh, and imaginative editor, history editor of Penguin, Simon Winder, who is also the editor of Penguin Classics, he said, OK, Mary, what are you doing these days? And I told him, because I thought this isn't a project that would interest him, because they do different types of books. And he says, mm -hmm wait, but would it fit the Penguin Classics? I said, well, it's not a classic in as much as it's not exactly that well known by people, but also it's not, a, it, the writing isn't exceptional. He said, no, no, nowadays we think of what a classic is sort of differently. We think of important texts that have informed our cultures in important ways, and in as much as it's the first articulation of this very nasty accusation of child murder against Jews. So he encouraged me, and I must say I felt a bit queasy about Mm. putting into Penguin Classics somehow out there. Sure, it gives it a, a sort of stamp of authenticity exactly. of the actual content. Uh, so I actually wrote an email to 10 of, and I, and I knew that most of the reading in the U.S. would be in the United States where the whole issue of cultural encounter in Jewish history is much, 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 much more developed and just the numbers of institutions that teach mm. and also the use by undergraduates of, they actually buy the text that they use rather than in this country, it's different. So I wrote to 10 fantastic medievalists in America who I know are great teachers and will be interested in the subject and all that. And I wrote this email and I said, look, um, what do you think? Is this something that's worth having in the classroom? Is this something that would um, you know, benefit sort of understanding, that it would serve some sort of purpose? And uh, one of, and, and they all, they, first of all, they all answered really quickly and they all said, Yes, absolutely, totally. I'm always like recycling these few bits that are out there and totally we want, yes, this would be really useful. It's a very rich and interesting text. But also people who teach Middle English literature, or teach Chaucer, there is of course the Prioress's Tale, yeah. which is a tale that it's a, it's a different type of child murder, but it has an interesting affinity to this earlier story. So people in English would also be interested. So that convinced me. But I also remember that one of these colleagues very kindly said to me, Mary, look, if you're worried about anti-Semitic texts out there, come on. The internet is so full, and those who want these sort of things know where to find them. I mean, your learned and carefully introduced uh, text is not going to make any difference in that sense. It'll only be a good thing if you introduce it and show people how these type of narratives are developed. So, I was convinced. And is, is that, has that been your experience? I mean, you've, uh, I'd like to be perhaps a little bit more explicit because I'm sure that there are some people who 
who might be watching this who might not have any idea what this text actually refers to mm -hmm. or aspects of mm -hmm. the blood libel and, and, and its repercussions and its orientation. But this, this notion of um, the relationship between Christians and Jews, this notion of scapegoating, this notion of uh, uh, perhaps it could even be said that had somehow the Jews not existed, they might have had to have been invented in order to fully flesh out aspects of Christianity, which later came to pass. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the dynamics between the two, the impact that it's had. But first, I'd like you to back up and just uh, give a very brief synopsis of mm. what the contents of this book actually were and, and, uh, and what was said and the impact that it had. Okay, so the text that I edited was copied around the year 1200 but it's a copy of a text that was written um, between 1150 and 1173 that is not sometime between those dates, that is across that period. And it's occasioned by the fact uh, that a monk arrives as a new member of the community of the Cathedral of Norwich, a lovely, beautiful cathedral. And the Cathedral of Norwich is a rather new institution. It was founded in 1090, that it's, it's a creation post-Norman conquest. It's not one of these older, old institutions. It's new, so in a sense, it's also looking for a role for itself in the world and an identity. And um, we are told by our text that in 1144, a boy had disappeared just before, um, just before Easter, and then his body was found in a wood outside the city of Norwich, and it had very distinctive marks on it. And some people claim that those marks suggested that the Jews had killed him. Being, that being the case, uh, a relative of the boy, who's a priest, goes to the Bishop of Norwich. And this is Easter time, so there's a synod, there's gathering of all sorts of ecclesiastics in the city, there's a lot of ritual activity, and says to the Bishop, do something about it. You know, my nephew has been uh, killed by the Jews. So the Bishop does the right thing. In everything to do with the Jews, you turn to the Sheriff, because the Jews were considered serfs of the crown. They were lived in England under the privilege and the protection, privileges given by the crown and protected by the representative. And the sheriff is a representative in every county, in this case Norwich and Norfolk. So uh, he turns up, we are told in this text, and he says, absolute nonsense. There's no reason for them to do it. There's no evidence. And he protects the Jews. and He puts them in his castle for protection. And some people in town still believed the boy was special. And uh, the bishop allowed the family to bury the boy actually in the uh, cemetery outside the cathedral. So that's a certain honor. And some even said that miraculous signs were occurring around uh, very soon around the tomb. That is, uh, there was a rose that continued to bloom throughout the winter and so on. Okay, so that's what we are told happened in 1144 in its immediate aftermath. But this new arrival is a new monk, new boy on the block. He learns about his institution. He hears these stories and says, why, this is terrible. You've had practically a martyr in your midst. The Jews do this terrible deed and nothing's been done. They're protected. And the boy is just not remembered. He's just buried there. So he creates, so this is his task now to change this. 
So he does so by creating a hagiography that is a life, a vita, as saints need to have a vita that tells their story, often including instances from before their birth, even during the pregnancy, their mother's pregnancy, that were already signs, let alone a pious and virtuous uh, childhood, signs already there, and ultimately telling a story, creating a narrative, which is totally he confected, because uh, of how the boy came to be with the Jews in the week leading up to Easter, which is also coincides with Passover, which is true in 1144, that is the case. And um, they tortured the boy, and they abused the boy uh, physically, and ultimately he died, and then they hung him from the doorposts, between the doorposts. <clears throat> and he sets himself up as a sort of cold case investigator, because the obvious thing is to say, how do you know all of this? You weren't there in 1144. So he says, oh, I found witnesses, I went to the place of the crime, etc. And he develops this extremely articulate, um, very convincing, as it were, narrative. And then he says, and if, as if that's not enough, that uh, he also heard from a convert from Judaism that this is something the Jews do every Easter. They have to do it every Easter. Some community in Europe has to do it. And then he says, and even if that were not to be believed, look at the profusion of miracles. Look at the miracles that are happening. Once we brought him in, we buried him in the cathedral. He had to be moved a number of times because it was such a throng of visitors that it disrupted the whole life of the cathedral, we are told. Uh, and ultimately, tens and tens, over a hundred miracles occurred. I mean, come on, this is the proof. What more could you want, as it were? So it's inventive. It's extremely detailed. It's detailed in this imagining what a killing of a boy would be. And it's very full of sort of references to images and words that would suggest that you're thinking really about a re-crucifixion, although it's not quite set up as a re-crucifixion. Sort of, you know, the boy had five pressure points that were pressed upon by a knotted rope in the hands of the Jews, like the five wounds of Christ, etc., etc. And above all, it's, it's the pure lamb being taken to the slaughter. It's the purity of this boy who so didn't deserve it, which, which, which underlines and, and, and shows just how perverse and how cruel the Jews are. So this is the package. And this is a story that had not been told before. There are all sorts of accusations about Jews, that they abuse images of the Virgin Mary, whatever. But this story was never told before. And then, basically, it's a tradition that exists in the world today, albeit in a... Uh, a very minor way, but throughout the Middle Ages there were instances, tens of instances, where people accused Jews in the case of a disappearance of a child or, or just because they wanted to get rid of a competitor or whatever. Now, these cases did not always lead to massacres, just mm. as they didn't in Norwich. They didn't always, because very often it just wasn't believed once it was brought to court, it just didn't convince, it didn't hold together. Sometimes, you know, towns just didn't want the mess and violence and intervened and sometimes rulers protected the Jews and so on. But it's there in the lore, it's there in the in the storytelling, it's it's available. So how much impact did this book actually have when it was <clears throat> when it was written? How many how many people um, swallowed the whole story, Holus Bolus, and what, what effects did it have? Well, again, the book tells us that lots of people came to be cured. Right. So clearly it was known. But they came from a very specific 
surrounding, which is very much from Norfolk, and particularly from villages that were on the estates of the Bishop of Norwich. So, so there's a sort of connection to the city There's coming and going of officials, so people will have heard about it and therefore try to make this pilgrimage. Right. It's not uh, particularly famous. Um, it didn't have, uh, no. And, and of course, it was never sponsored, say, by the papacy or anything. So it was a local tradition of sorts. He wasn't actually canonized, right? Is that correct? He, he was, was never canonized. No, 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 no. Absolutely not even near. But we do find that later in the 12th century, in a number of other cities that had similar institutions, that is Benedictine priories, monasteries, um, in Gloucester and in uh, Bury St. Edmunds, and in, um, th there are suggestions that there was some accusation, but it didn't really go anywhere that we know about, but that there were accusations made locally. So, so it clearly traveled in a sort of Benedictine network to some extent, although we don't have any manuscripts to show that for that period. And I suggest in it, that in the book, and I was able, able to show a connection, that it got copied also by um, a number of Cistercian writers in Cistercian priories. And what's important about the Cistercians is that this is an order that was found in the late 11th century, and it was the great, great success of the 12th century. There were, it's a, it's a big network, and they're in order, and they're linked up with each other very strongly through discipline, but also through regular annual meetings. So the Cistercians travel a lot, and they're inveterate storytellers as well. So there's this whole network, scholars now talk about the Cistercian news communication network. So the fact that it was in the Cistercian, I can show it being in at least two Cistercian locations, also suggests that at least it got more exposure. But we can't say any more mm. than that, really. So I mean, I guess there, there are two aspects. Um, I don't want to dwell on this too much, because I'd like to move over to the Virgin Mary a little bit. Um, but there is the cult of, of William and the shrine and the people who are um, coming to the shrine and hoping to be healed and the, the phenomenon that, that exists in that particular area locally or otherwise. And then there, there is this question of the wider repercussions of, of this uh, blood libel against the Jews. And At the time it's a child murder accusation. It's not suggested that this has anything to do with their rituals. The story gets elaborated. It gets elaborated, particularly in the 13th century, as to be something that, as it were, the Jews do it because they need it for their ritual. They need the blood. They need the blood for the matzah and this sort of thing. Mm. This is a very early stage. This is the child murder accusation. In fact, I don't use the word blood libel in my uh, book, in my translation, right. but I know that other scholars do. But I think it's because these are such weighty issues. It's extremely important to sh to, to be very, very precise about it. Right. So, um, if I may move uh, to this remarkable work of scholarship, The Mother of God, that you've, you've written, can you tell me a little bit about um, what motivated you, again, to, to go into that direction, and, and also what surprised you? Because mm -hmm. this must have been quite a, quite a long and involved effort, and I'm sure you've, you've had all sorts of twists and turns along the way. Absolutely, yes. And um, uh, I came to read a lot about Mary, in the course of the um, book about the Eucharist, actually, because when I was read, reading and researching stories 
that claimed that the Jews abused the sacrament. I was trying to find out, is there a tradition of suggesting that Jews um, do this sort of thing? So I read around in miracle stories and sermons and exemplar and all the sort of various forms of nuggets of religious communication, quite apart from the theology, in order to say, how did people get these ideas about the Jews? And it turned out that actually amongst the Marian miracles, I mean, Marian miracles are there from the early Middle Ages, but they really get codified, collected in the 12th century into a recognizable collection in Latin. Actually, it happens in England. It probably happened in Bury St. Edmunds in the south of England that the monks put together this collection and then it got translated to all sorts of languages. So all over Europe you had versions. And also in different localities, people added local stories about Mary from local shrines to it. But it became a, a form of religious literature very, very well known. Very well known and it influenced, say, um, visuals and, and the composition of religious music and so on. So this is a very important part of the religious culture is the Marian miracle. I found that regularly in the Marian miracle, there are Jews involved, Jews who mock or Jews who make a mistake or whatever, and then they ultimately marry causes them to convert. So how interesting. In the Marian context, there's a happy end. The Jew converts all as well. But in the Eucharistic context, the Jews who abuse the sacrament, there's no way back. They really have to be punished. So I thought that was important to show that even within this religious culture, you have different pathways, as it were, in terms of understanding how appropriately to judge the Jew and, and what could happen with a Jewish protagonist. So I thought, oh, actually, we need a really good book about Mary in the Middle Ages. There were, there were books about uh, Mary uh, in Anglo-Saxon, fantastic works on Mary in Anglo-Saxon England by Mary Clayton. They were on various places, but as a phenomenon, to inquire into this phenomenon. So I thought I'd write a book about Mary in the Middle Ages, which everything I'd done up to then sort of prepared me for, as it were. And then I started reading, obviously, background, and I found that it's so peculiar that Mary would take to be absolutely fundamental in the, particularly the Catholic tradition, the Christian tradition of the Middle Ages, that really there is a moment of utter emergence, that it, you wouldn't find it in the first millennium, in fact, if you just read word for word, Mary doesn't turn up that much even in the Gospel. Mary is in some very important locations, like in the creed that arises in the fourth century that gets, you know, from Constantinople and the, these very formative councils of the church. It's actually very important in the world of Apocrypha from the second century. There's a total fascination with Mary. Where did she come from? How did this Jewish girl become the mother of God, etc., etc.? And that and then I took a bold decision, and some people thought it wasn't a wise decision, I dare say. Well, some have told me they thought it was biting off rather too much. So I decided actually to tell the story from the beginning. And it's absolutely clear that for the first few hundreds of years, if there's Mary in the Syriac tradition or the Armenian tradition, obviously I would depend there on the uh, research on, of others and read some stuff in translation. Because it was exactly the drama of how out of this peculiarly nebulous presence, ultimately the European Mary developed. Because even in, say, the 7th, 8th, ninth century, I'm not saying that Mary wasn't known, of course, but it was a version of Mary that was very much created in the Eastern Mediterranean, particularly in the Byzantine, and it was very much at the level of sort of courtly elites and so on. 
but you know, from about the 12th century, Mary is everyone's mother. She's Europe's mother. She is omnipresent in so many different forms and, and media, etc. So, um, so some of the things that surprised me were really indeed in the, this issue of the, the temporality of it, that there's actually a story to be told about Mary. It wasn't all the same. There is dramatic change. And to reflect on it, what does it mean to have this figure, this, this, this figure of a mother at the heart of the visuals of the, of, of, of the, of the spiritual world and the emotional world of Europeans. I also wrote a, a little book I was invited to give some uh, lectures in honor of Natalie Zeman Davis. So then those I published as a little book about Mary and emotion. But um, it just led me in so many interesting directions. And I tried to find a pathway through it all, obviously. But um, there's just so much out there. And I'm delighted to see that there are people working in all sorts of areas on Mary. And it's, it's very, very rich. That's also what I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask what the repercussions were of this, not only within the scholarly historical community, in terms of how it was received, but I could imagine that some of your work um, might step on some toes uh, within people of a more religious persuasion who might not be as motivated. I'm guessing that's just going that's to go away. Phone. That's the house phone. Yeah, we'll just leave it in. I guess we should leave it. It seems That'll to be get getting out. more indignant now. <laughs> So, um, so people's I'm, attitudes. You were saying yes. So I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm wondering if there might might have been some concern raised or or feelings of discomfort from people of a more strictly religious persuasion who might be who might take some form of umbrage of their religious and uh, figures being being treated in in, in a blatantly historical context, if I can use that expression, which I, I think I can, regardless of its appropriateness, because I just did. Yes, uh, definitely. There were. There were. It was evident that it made people... One very, very distinguished reviewer said, um, uh, Mary Rubin would have been fantastic to write a book about Mary and the Jews, but, um, you know, there's just so much here, you know, that needs doing, and the Syriac, and the whatnot. So, so yes, there was a sense in which, uh, but on the other hand, there were also those who wrote to say how much they enjoyed it, and people really also from just the general public, and, uh, and, and the thing is that, as I say, so many scholars now are working on Marian themes and so on, and I think that I've provided them with the framework, ways of thinking. This book is absolutely full of ideas, even if I say so, ideas, possibilities, roads that could be traveled where I just suggest something, I just give one example, and there could be a whole PhD in it. I mean, seriously. In fact, PhDs in books are being produced. And I said to myself, well, it's in the book. Uh, so I thought a lot. I also benefited from uh, reading a lot about other periods, that is, later periods than I sort of went up to the point that Mary goes global, which is the 16th century. Mary is carried, you know, with the, with the Hispanic Empire to Asia, to Latin America, etc., etc. And then I have a little aftermath about Mary and modernity, but it's just a set of thoughts. 
but the real the, the greater continuity and density in the argument is up to the end of the 16th century because all the versions of Mary are then available. From then on, of course, there are developments, there are new visions, there are new this, there are new shrines, there's Lord, what not. But you have everything you need to understand them by reading those earlier chapters, I think. Right. I was specifically thinking about the Apocrypha and the, the, the notion that people had different ideas, different thoughts, different perspectives on Mary that, were, that was later on not considered to be legitimate or genuine or, or incorporated in the official corpus and so forth. And uh, that I, I can imagine, I'm not of a particularly strong religious persuasion, but I can imagine that were I of a particularly strong religious persuasion, I might say, well, hang on, this, mm. this wasn't real and so forth and so on. Anyway, we don't have to dwell on that. Um, I'd like to ask you a question about who you write for and how you write, because a book like this must have been difficult to write insofar as, and many of your works in fact, because you're combining scholarship, but at the same time, I'm imagining that you're also writing for a motivated uh, member of the lay public. Is that, is that difficult to square that circle at all, or, or not so much? Well, in the Mary book, I thought that I was trying to do both, definitely. Um, as opposed to, say, a more recent little book, the very short introduction to the Middle Ages. That's for beginners, for students, for, yeah. Uh, and I thought that um, the scholarship and the suggestions and the footnotes <laughs> would serve the scholars and also they would know what I'm getting at very often, which, but, but also it was written in a fairly engaging manner, which I hope it in. It's such a rich subject, you can so easily interest people. So, in that book, I consciously tried to do both. In earlier books, I didn't expect them, didn't expect them to, to, to cross over sure. so evidently. This well, is the book where I really felt that it could be for both. Was it difficult to do both simultaneously? I can imagine it, it might be. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I really believe that if you understand something well, you can explain it to a five-year-old. Well, that's exaggerating, but, but I really do understand. Think that if you know, <laughs> if you know what you're talking about, you can share it. If you really have thought carefully, and then there's the issue of exemplification, as well. If you seek in your materials communicable nuggets of which exemplify what you're talking about, and you work hard to find the right ones, I think it can work. But also, it comes from years and years of teaching. Our students are bright, our students read, uh, but still you have to explain things to them. So I mean, I think I was, it was the right thing to do just then. Right. I'd like to talk a, a little bit about the process of doing history and archival research and what it's like to, to work as a historian. Um, I talked some months ago with Theo Ruiz, and he told me uh, an amusing story, and I'm wondering if you had this experience as well. He talked about how when he was a, a beginning scholar, he went into the archives, and he, this was in Spain, and, and he was, I, I don't remember, maybe he didn't even tell me what the particular research was about, it doesn't really matter, but he was faced with this document that was whatever it was, seven or eight hundred years old, and he couldn't read it at all. 
he, he, and then he was overwhelmed with this sense that, well, I just, I can't, I can't do this. I can't make head or tail of what these people are actually saying. And at some point he thought that he would go back and become a cab driver. And then he, he went somewhere and calmed down. Um, and then later on went back to the archives and slowly We're started fortunate that moving, he did. Moving, <laughs> moving forwards. And from his perspective, he said, this is a fairly common reaction that when you, you're first trained, you, you, you get the sense of being overwhelmed and you can't really go, go forwards. Um, uh, and after that, uh, the, the road was uh, obviously had several bumps in it, but was, was, was fairly straightforward. Um, have you experienced anything like that? Or, or have, have at that practical to? level, I never did. And it goes back to the fact that uh, I, had a, I had a very, very strong formation. And as I said, like when I came to Cambridge to do my PhD, I had people who taught me paleography, people who taught me diplomatics. Right. Uh, I had, you know, Christopher Brooke coming to the archive with me just to check that all is well. So uh, introduced me around. I, I had been, I was trained for what I needed to do. Uh, right now, um, the challenge, a challenge that, uh, it, well, the challenge that occurs, I mean, it occurs to me that I'm working on, but something I would like to be able to do, and which frustrates me is that the Central Europe and Western European historians and Western historians have all but ignored it until very recently, for reasons I can understand. Um, I just, I'm, I'm working, I'm, I'm studying Polish. I've been studying now for two years. Mm. But I wish I had a Slavic language that would allow me to sort of really do sort of I know that most of the sources are from my period are Latin and in German, in fact, because for all sorts of reasons, in, in the cities, which is where I would look primarily, the German, German language was uh, hegemonic, but I still feel it would be so interesting to penetrate a whole, to be able to read articles written by amazing uh, scholars, say, medievalists from Poland, to read them, what they wrote in the 60s and 70s and 80s when they wrote in Polish. Now they're writing much more in English. I feel that would be quite an interesting thing to do. And reading the documents, for me, I have languages and I'm quite used to it, although I haven't done archival research for a number of years. I do different types of research, but I've returned to it now because of my current project. And um, that hasn't been so much the problem. Uh, if you start working on art, if you start working on liturgy, you have to train yourself, you have to retrain, and that's also a challenge. So over the last, say, decade, I've worked much more and thought much more about liturgy, about material culture, about, so you're acquiring all sorts of skills. So with Teo, it was the moment of actually reading the script. You actually get your eye into a, well, the stuff I've had to read, you get your eye into it very, very quickly, really. Yeah. And also in the archives, there are often other scholars there, there are archivists you can ask for help. There is a way around it. But, um, but it's, it's actually coming to totally new types of sources, like, you know, how do you read space? How do you, I mean, yeah. trying to understand a city through space? Or how do you look at liturgy as a sort of unfolding of ritual and understand what's going on in your ways? Or how do you, or just equipping yourself to look at imagery and to understand it. That's a form of reading too, and that, that is also something I've had to acquire and still am acquiring. So 
maybe nothing so as dramatic as, dramatic as tale. But, so you've tantalized me with little bits and pieces of your latest project, but you haven't uh, I haven't asked, so now I'm going to ask. What, what, what is your latest project and what are you working on? And does it have anything to do with reading, to, to learning? You mentioned learning Polish, but, but presumably that's something... I started that two years ago, but in right. fact, um, I have a project which I shall do after this one, uh, which I thought I would be doing. I'm, I'm on a sabbatical, a well-earned sabbatical, because I was head of the School of History for almost four years, so this is four my years. reward. Almost for you. I should have given you two sabbaticals. Indeed. <laughs> so, um, oh, it's not really a sabbatical, sort of research leave thing. So I had my plan. I was going to do a really, really interesting study of the emergence and change in this extraordinary representation of, of Judaism and Christianity in the form of two female figures, Ecclesia and Synagoga. This became a sort of way of thinking about them, of representing them side by side, it became absolutely embedded into the sort of, uh, into the Gothic architectural project. Um, there's a lot there and something very interesting happened in the later Middle Ages, which I shall not tell you, you'll have to wait until I finish the project, but it's, it's, it's a really interesting project. And I was all set up to do that, and then I was asked, it was a tremendous honour, to deliver in May in 2017 in Belfast the Wiles Lectures, mm. which are a really challenging, interesting series of four lectures. Uh, and the rubric for the lectures set down by the family, and I, who founded it, uh, is that the subject should have a sort of importance for civilization. Civilization was a word used a lot in the 50s. Our civilization, their civilization, Cornwall. But I know what they mean something that is worth thinking about publicly to deliver these lectures which attract a lot of people, people who aren't historians, people who aren't medievalists. It's a big event in the University of Belfast, a university who's in a city that has seen so much sorrow. And they got me at the moment. I was on holiday and I was on holiday in Italy and constantly hearing about last summer, mm. summer 2015, all the refugees coming and Angela Merkel opening the door. So I said, that's what I want to understand. I want to understand how the cities, well, I can't, I'm a medievalist, but I want to understand how cities receive immigrants, how they manage their diversity. And given that I've always, in a way, been working on subjects that have to do with the city, from the charity, to the Jews living in cities, to, to, to rituals in Corpus Christi and whatnot, I sort of do know the cities, but I've never asked this question of cities. So that's what I committed myself to doing. And they were very happy because they could see that it satisfied the rubric and that it was interesting. And it has a particular provision, this set of lectures, that you invite experts to interrogate you after the lectures, every night after the lectures, you have mm -hmm. dinner, and then there's discussions. So I invited some really smart and wonderful people to test me and to make it hard and to make it all better towards the book that comes out of it, as it must do, uh, as part of the deal. So I'm reading about cities now. I'm reading about cities all over Europe. So that's both an engagement with the literature that is there, but I'm also going to home in to a number of cities uh, about particular issues. So which cities in particular are I'm going future? to look at Siena. I'm going to look, I mean, I, I'm looking at particular 
registers and particular documents because mm. obviously you can't do everything in sure. the time. I'm looking at the lovely little town in the Quercy, Gourdon, which welcomed into its midst in 1266 the Jewish community. I'll be looking at Paris. I'll be looking at Prague. I'll be looking at Buda, as in Budapest. I'll be looking at London. So I'm not saying that in each of these I'm going to do, a f I'm going to look at them for particular things that interest me in the way how they arrange. And of course I'm reading a lot of primary sources in the shape of um, just town statutes. How town statutes are, they're not just documents that are set in stone and never, they're, they're constantly, they're revised, they're commented upon. How the statutes of cities tell me about how civic leaders and lawyers thought they can create an environment that will deal with the issue of diversity and difference. And I imagine, without knowing at all, and I'm hoping that you'll embellish upon this, but I imagine that there is a mixture of morality, economic tactics, Definitely. Uh, a, a sense of cultural ethos for the community and so forth that, that, all, uh, that is all brought to bear on these things. Um, and that each city, each region might have a different perspective and a different orientation. And at different times. And, and presumably wanting to capitalize on, uh, on the, the, the geopolitics of their time. If people have been kicked out over here, then they might say, oh, this might be an opportunity for the us Jews to are a great example. They get kicked out of the German cities in the 15th century. They go to Hungary, they go to Poland, they go to the uh, further afield. But is it possible to make any sort of broad-based generalization in terms of people in this particular city or this region tended to be more of this disposition or that disposition. Can, can one categorize in any way? Is that meaningful at all? I could categorize, not so much in that way, but in, I think it's helpful to say, for example, ports. Ports are constitutionally very, very diverse. They have to be. Right. They can't not be. So you have to f face up to it and make provisions if you want to distinguish between out sort of comers from elsewhere and old citizens or whatever, but you have to deal with it. It's never going to go away. So that's a good example. And actually there's a very, very old Roman law tradition of dealing with the port, Alexandria, Rome. I mean, you know, so well, Rome, Rome's equivalent on the, uh, on the, on the sea. Uh, so that's one thing. Then um, about size. It's not clear to me that... Um, are bigger cities better at coping than smaller cities? Mm. Are better uh, is it better to have people all thrown together and living close side by side? or Because the ghetto is, is, is a new thing in the 16th century. It's not the rule. And it's not the rule even after the 16th century. Um, do you... Um, is there a difference if people have come from the immediate hinterland or from far away? How does the ethnic and the religious... Um, coincide or not coincide. So all these issues are what I'm going to try and make some sense of. And I'm also going to treat, and this is my, I think this is going to work, I'm also going to look at how women are treated. Because clearly women are not treated as obvious citizens of the city. They sometimes can gain a freedom of a city, mm. the equivalent of citizenship, but on the whole, they're not imagined as the fabric that runs, the people who run the city and its fabric. So what are they? 
aren't they also a form of something that has to be dealt with in terms of where they are and what work they do and how they can contribute, etc. So I'm going to have one whole lecture about seeing it through this sort of gender thing and see how far I can go with that, which will be quite interesting, right. I think. And you have to pick your experts to quiz you afterwards in, a, in advance, so you've already... Yeah, they have to be invited and everything. Right, yeah. sure. So you've already... And agree. Right. <laughs> already done that. That's, that's quite a... Ch and and, the and they've agreed, so that's very nice. The, the book itself, I understand that's part of the provision of giving the lectures and so forth, but uh, presumably that's an obvious thing to be doing. If, if one is doing all this research and, and thinking and, and so forth, one would one is naturally motivated to be writing writing a book or series of books or series of research projects, at least in, in these particular areas. Um, and this book itself uh, that, you're, that you have in mind in, uh, in association with this lecture series, what sort of audience are you thinking about or are you writing this for? Yeah, that's such. Okay, so intelligent and interested people, otherwise they won't have turned up to the lectures. Right. Uh, but I think I will explain quite a lot because since it's a subject, it's a very interesting subject in all places and times, I imagine that people would read it, maybe historical geographers, maybe people dealing with cities in other contexts and other continents altogether. Uh, so in that sense, I think it'll have to be fairly accessible, but that's not a problem. Right. I'll translate stuff, I'll explain stuff, uh, and, and on the other hand, when you do that, then you could also mobilize the fact that people have thought about cities and other contexts in their own lifetimes, so you can build upon that in terms of what they expect to find, what they don't expect to find. So I think that will be good, and also I'm going to, I've started reading about divided cities and the whole issue of cities like Belfast. Belfast is an amazing place to give these lectures. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and just ask you, I'm coming, I'm getting, getting towards the end, so I don't yeah, want to take up too much more of your time. You've been very generous, thank you. Um, I want to ask a somewhat different question, which is, how has, in your mind, if at all, uh, technology and recent technological advances impacted on historical research and scholarship? It's too soon to say, at one level, but of course, we can do things that, um, I mean, just the ease by which I write to a library and I say, I want to see this document, and they send me a scan, oh, this scan through, is just incredible. On the other hand, that means I haven't visited that library. Right. So there are all sorts of swings and roundabouts in that sense that it's very hard to, um, it's sort of hard as it to assess. Uh, but there's no doubt at all that in areas like, um, the brilliant project of Catherine Hall that's happening in UCL, the amazing project about analyzing what happened with the money that was given to ex-slaveholders after the abolition of slavery. Because people were compensated royally. Mm. And it was also very ordinary people. It could be you know, a widow who owned a quarter of a slave. You know, It penetrated very deep in the society. How did British society benefit from this um, windfall of wealth. So there's, there are registers and registers and registers. This sort of project could not be imagined before digital humanities and it's crunching it and, and testing it and testing it against sense. It just would have been impossible to even imagine. It would have been impossible to even think that it could be a possibility mm. in theory. Also, this whole move that I've already mentioned towards using, defining our sources beyond the written 
to the material culture, to images, etc. I mean, just, just, just even for my project Ecclesia and Synagogue, just searching for those, those images, I'm just searching catalogues, manuscripts, I'm searching all sorts of data deposits that are now available, but they're not just available because catalogues, some of them were printed, but they're so much more available, but also when you get into them, you get, you get so much more out of it, you get images, you can mm. deal. I, I had this really strange experience. I was uh, reading a text, from, which was published, a text of a debate from the 13th century, as it were staged between Ecclesia and Synagogue, church and synagogue. So I said, oh gosh, I have to write that down because I must, because I'm going to go to Paris and I'll see it. And then I said, wait, nonsense. So many, most of the doc, most of the manuscripts of the Bibliothèque Nationale have been digitized. So I Google it and I check on the deposit and it's there. And I look at it and the book unfolds and I see every page and every, so yeah. So these are extraordinary. But, but what does that mean? Does that mean then that we have the self, this, this false confidence of like, we know it and we have it and we spend less time thinking, developing our concepts, uh, going to conferences. I don't know. Are we going to become more sedentary so we don't go out and actually breathe the air and see and touch places and things? I think inevitably. I think, I mean, well, you tell me what you think, yeah, yeah. but I mean, I think that's, that's, that's clearly going to happen. Yeah. And it's clearly already happening. Yeah, presumably. it's already happening, I'm sure. Uh, and the question is, is it manageable? Does it affect people? Uh, my, my own guess would be that it would, be, it would have a more pronounced effect on younger people who haven't had the opportunity to have had those experiences. So they won't miss it, as it were. Yes, yeah. and they won't, they, they won't have had them at all. They won't even know what it's like yeah. to, to be doing yeah. that. It's quite, it, it used to be quite normal to you'd go to a conference, particularly in Germany, they're very good at it. You go to a conference. and built into the conference, there's a day or a half day of excursions. They put you on a bus, they take you, you see stuff, you go on and off the bus. And, and I have a feeling that that's shrinking partly because everyone's so busy, but it's also shrinking because of the notion, oh, you can Google it and have a look at it later sort of thing. And that yeah. would be a shame. Well, I'm thinking about one other thing as you mentioned this. So there's Googling things and there's digitizing and there are processes for doing that. But presumably there are all sorts of ways of using technology, designing one's own search function, modeling in a particular way, um, where one is not dependent on the powers that be at Google or, or whomever to come up with that. Is that part and parcel of modern training to be, uh, uh, to have some exposure to, to, uh, to modern technology, to computer searching, whatever. Is, is that, if I'm a historian and I want to uh, think about doing a, a PhD now or, or even an undergraduate degree, do I get exposed to that way of thinking at all? Or do I, am I just uh, in a situation where I wait and, and see whatever tools are, are thrown back at me? Well, there are some extraordinary centers where that is explicitly provided, but I think on the whole, uh, my, I have a colleague, Eyal uh, Poleg, who is a great digital humanities leader at Queen Mary, and he's a medievalist, and um, he claims that, first of all, at the undergraduate level, although people are on their phones all the time, people don't understand digital humanities at all. They really do not have any sophisticated understanding, most of them. Or those who do have gone to study computer science and not to study history. Mm. We try, and indeed he has been very successful because he won some funding from the European Research Council to run 
training sessions for PhD students so that they know how to edit their texts, you know, like the text that I edited, but also to edit it digitally, so it's available online. He's very interested, and through him I've learned, of communities of editing together. Hmm. Tools that allow you, so you're editing a text together, and the issue of who does what and who checks whom, and the responsibility that you take and the development of the commentary on the text uh, progresses in a very visible and transparent way so colleagues can work together and it's obviously extremely efficient and extremely effective. And different because it enables all sorts of linkages across space as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And then there's the issue of course of crowdsourcing. I see more and more uh, people asking for, I need help for this, I need to know that. Does anybody ever know? And it's amazing how people pop up with suggestions and so on. Now, the scholarship community has always been very generous in that way. Mm. People are always helping each other, despite what people think about academics, actually. People give their time, younger scholars particularly, but to colleagues, they are extremely generous. This makes it actually really easy. And therefore, this type of sharing will occur, I think, more and more is occurring more and more, and it's a beautiful thing to behold. I can, I can see the positive aspects. Perhaps I'm just a negatively oriented person, but I can also see that there might be some negative aspects as well. Analogous to um, a phenomenon that, of course, is all pervasive in our society, which is, well, you don't actually have to know anything. You can yeah. just Google it. Yeah. And so similarly, one can imagine a situation where people become less self-reliant. Yeah. And, You're and quite they, right, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And that's where our institutions have to be rigorous and vigilant. Right. It's help. It's great. If, some, if particularly something out of the way that you want to find out. Uh, I'm working on cities here. Does anybody know a really great book about cities in China? You know, rather than Googling it, somebody actually recommending because they read it. That actually makes it better. That actually corrects humanly, human-wise, for the Google randomness to some extent. But... Uh, it's not totally random, I know, but, but it's not through the mediation of a colleague that, for whom you have a name or a face. So, um, we'll see. We're watching. We're watching. So, my penultimate question, um, having alluded to the negative aspects of, of uh, appealing to the all-knowing Google, nonetheless, I'm going to... Uh, ask a somewhat peculiar question, which is, if I were an all-knowing individual, if I were God, or the equivalent of God, or gods, or what have you, <laughs> and I could answer any question you would have with respect to your research, your scholarship, who did what, when, what sort of orientation was here or there, what sort of question what might you ask me? I'd like to ask you to forecast. forecast. I'd like to ask you... <clears throat> You know, looking forward, exactly the sort of questions about, um, I'm sure you know the work of Yuval Harari, who is mm. somebody I helped uh, nurture when he, in his Oxford years, uh, um, uh, will we or won't we retain our ability to scrutinize ethically um, all the wonderful possibilities that are offered us, which we've also invented, which we've also created of intelligences that will solve problems for us, which will make life easier, which will, uh, you know, how can we retain a sense of ourselves that doesn't just diminish a tiny bit? And what is that self? Who is that self? I am look back to some Enlightenment games. The 20th century's done a great deal. If you think of feminism, if you think of 
all sorts of changes in our attitudes to people, human rights and whatnot. But the question would be how do we how do we hang on to all of that while there's this inexorable change going on all the time? My last question um, is a meta question. So do you have any um, anything that you'd like to add? Have we alighted anything? Is there something you'd like to embellish upon yourself? Is yes. there anything? Yes. And that is to say that in the making of a historian, I slightly alluded to the fact that going off to seminars apparently not in, on your topic is a good thing. I would say even more. You have to read widely, you have to listen to music, you have to go to the theatre, you've got to talk to people. It's really, really important not sort of that extra hour of reading yet another article in the evening rather than watching a film or reading a book or even cooking a meal. Um, I think it's a false economy. Mm. And, and I'm guessing that you are doing your best to impress this upon your students and yes. those, those around you. and they're you wonderful. As, yes. as most you can. Yeah. Um, do you feel that they're, so they're wonderful, which is, which is helpful, and wonderful even, um, and they're receptive to this? Because the pressure seemed to be more in the other direction. They, they don't, I mean, and the pressure is on. They have to finish in a shorter period of time, their PhDs and all that. But I think, I think, I'm just thinking about the current ones. They all have other interests. A number of them are very, very musically active, for example. Um, I encourage them by the gifts I give them to read books, fiction. Um, Would you go so They far? do resist. I, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do think that it's easy for her to say. Would, That's natural. It's a different generation. It's natural. Would, would you go so far as to say that not only would this make them fuller, rounder, more complete individuals, but this would also make them better scholars? Oh, absolutely. I'm not here to make them into an individual. I'm saying directly to do with the scholarship. Right. If you have nothing... That doesn't, you need to hear sounds and have thoughts that aren't from the echo chamber of, the, of your scholarship. And presumably you yourself have drawn upon all those different sounds in, ter in terms of launching yourself and, uh, for this project and that project. And, and I have, I have, I have, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm not only about reading in other places and all that, but I'm just returned to Italo Calvino's um, Città Invisibili, the um, Invisible Cities, which is this very strange imagination of Marco Polo telling the Kublai Khan about the cities he's seen. What is a city? And, and in his introduction, Italo Calvino says, I'm writing about the Middle Ages, but in fact I'm writing about the city today. If you were, so it's just another, I told you I'd stop asking questions, but I, I can't do that because I have, I'm congenitally um, impaired enough. I'm going to have to stop you soon okay. when okay. I go to my seminar <laughs> um, to catch my train. So, so my, my, it, in terms of bringing that down to an even younger level, so if we were to say, should students at a high school level or even a primary school be exposed to more things? Is there too much specialization that's happening even at a very young level? There now? really is, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think there is. I think there is. Not so much specialization in terms of how many GCSEs or how many uh, A-levels you take. That is also 
highly specialized compared even, say, to the um, International Baccalaureate, keeps you going in a more diverse way. It's just what's important. I mean, you know, music in schools, taking kids to the theater, going for, I mean, all of that stuff is totally important. And the thing is, we have wonderful, wonderful schools in this country that can do it because they have the resources or they have the right leadership. So I'm not suggesting it's only in the, in the independent schools because they have more funds. It's actually, there are lots of wonderful state schools who manage to do it because, that manage to do it because of the way they're organized or all sorts of opportunities. But um, I think, yes, because you need this sense of wonder, I think. Great. Thank you very much, Mary. My this pleasure. Was My pleasure. You're amazing. I mean, how does he go on thinking all these questions all the time? I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Religion, along with separate discussions with David J. Goldberg, Niall Green, David Hollinger, and Eleanor Nesbitt. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.